0: Before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from CuriousCast that I think you might really, really enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using Internet trolls and hackers and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel this, this giant mystery with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters even a former Russian KGB agent. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Semple. He goes on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. You can listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the ongoing history of new music. Do it. Trust me. You'll love it. Once upon a time, not that long ago, and in a land not that far away, musicians not all of them, but some, could become very, very rich. Their riches came by selling pieces of plastic to those who enjoyed their music. Those pieces of plastic were very, very precious because this was the only way musicians could distribute recordings of their art, and their supply and their price was strictly regulated by the lords of the music industry. Eons earlier, the oracles had foretold that this plastic would come down in price, but that never seemed to happen. The overlords enjoyed their immense wealth and were loath to do anything that might jeopardize the power of their kingdoms. Meanwhile, musicians, not all but some, also reaped huge riches as millions and even tens of millions of people handed over their hard-earned money for the privilege of owning certain pieces of plastic. The musicians never made as much as their overlords, but they made plenty just the same. And it was good. In fact, it was very good. There were lavish parties, obscene luxuries, and plenty of indulgences on a scale unimaginable by the good citizens of the regular world. Yeah, it's not like that anymore. New artists know this, but what if you're one of those acts who had a taste of the good life, the old record industry, and then you had to adjust to the new realities? Let's talk to one of those artists, someone who has adjusted to life in the post-CD world how it was then, and what it's like now. Really. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. Before 1965, the goal of any musician was to keep working. That usually meant playing a lot of gigs. And if you sold some records, fine, that was good too. But with the rise of the album... And with high-margin LPs, eclipsing that of rock and roll's preferred format, the 45 RPM record, it soon became possible to become very, very rich from the sales of recordings. Music fans used to stay in line all night to be among the first to buy a certain artist's album. Record stores used to hand out shopping baskets at the door so people could carry all their purchases to the cash. And once upon a time, a mega act could sell two million copies of a single album in just one week. And that was just in the United States. Then came the digital era, which killed off those glory days forever. Physical album sales are tanking. Digital album sales have plateaued and actually have started to fall. Margins on the sales of music are razor thin. And streaming services are cannibalizing whatever sales are still happening. In many ways, we're going back to the way it was before 1965 and the rise of the album and rock and roll. And for those accustomed to the old ways, getting rich and famous by selling pieces of plastic, it's been tough. Many have been unable to adjust... For example, guys like Tom York and David Byrne rage against the rise of streaming music services. But others look at things and have evolved. And they say, "Okay, what do I have to do now to keep being a working musician? And one of those guys is Gavin Rossdale of Bush. Now, Bush, of course, was a majorly successful band of the 1990s, selling somewhere around 20 million records worldwide thanks to songs like this. That's Bush and Machine Head from 16 Stone, an album released on December 6th, 1994. Once it was discovered by the public, it sold 50,000 copies a week for months on end. Today, though, the industry is very, very different. Yet Bush is still a going concern. So this got me thinking. What's it like for a band to transition from the glory days of the music industry to the situation we have now? So, I sat down with Gavin Rossdale in New York, and we talked about things. Twenty years ago, you and I sat down, and uh, you were in a brand new band, and you had this album called uh, Sixteen Stone, and I was just thinking about how much life has changed for, for you as, as, uh, as an artist in those last 20 years. It's, um, back then, we were selling pieces of plastic. Now, it's a, an awful lot different, isn't it? Absolutely. Bush is a band that has you uh, know bridged this gap from the time that everybody was selling records to the Napster era, to the YouTube era, to whatever it is now. Um, what was it like from, from your point of view looking at this transition?
1: Well, I think that, that um, it's an incredible privilege to still be sat here, by the way. Nice to see you again. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we managed to, to work our way through the vicissitudes of time and how things have worked. But I'm a real, my mindset is always not worrying about the past and trying to, you know, in order to stay upstream, whatever, you've got to keep paddling and, and doing it. So I fully embrace the way that, um, that music is now and I have my Spotify premium um, I find it real easy to get uh, records. Certain pet records, I still buy. I still buy from Beatport mm-hmm. for the dance stuff because it's harder to find on Spotify. Um, I still buy certain people, bands that I love because I know that it, every bit helps. And uh, I just, I think there's something beautiful about making a record because you want to make a record. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, it was, it was, it was imbued. It was like weighed down by expectation, by comparative sales, by other acts going on. And now there's something pure and beautiful about the fact that we accept that none of us are gonna sell records. Mm. Obviously it's a, a, you know, people look at YouTube views, um, Pandora plays, whatever it is, all these different uh, services, Um, but in a way, it, it, I feel good about the fact that, you know, I worked really hard on Man on the Run, this record that we have now. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredibly uh, magical thing to make something for the sake of making it.
0: Here's the first single from Bush's 2014 album Man on the Run. It's called The Only Way Out. That's Bush and the only way out from their 2014 album, Man on the Run, a record made, well, differently.
1: So you don't have a conventional record deal anymore? Correct. Well, so the last record, Sea of Memories, it was what happened. Um, I recorded it a lot when I was still at Interscope uh, with Jimmy Iovine. So that took care of quite a bit of it. And then towards the end of the process, when when I Knew it was a Bush record, because at first I was just making songs, just making music, just recording. And I'd been trying to get Bush together for a while. I, before my solo career, I was trying to do that. Didn't want to do a solo record, I just wanted to be in my band. And that didn't work out, so I made the solo record by default. And uh, we left Interscope. I had a conversation with Jimmy, and I wanted to leave before I was tapped on the shoulder, <laughs> <laughs> into whatever. And um, I... So, so basically, I funded it myself um, outside of, they were very generous with me and gave me the recordings that I'd, I'd, I'd done. But in terms of then setting it up, in terms of doing stuff, we had a few distribution deals that helped uh, bits and pieces here and there, paid for gas every now and again. But the actual bulk of it, I invested in myself. I just was like, I was fortunate enough to come up and through a time, as you mentioned, that we would sell 50,000 copies of... A record a week for two years straight, so I I I I made a you know a couple of dollars and I believed in the band and what we were doing, and so I say I want staging. They say, well, who's going to? Oh, you know. So I did it all. So I funded it all, and then I even um, and then you know then we went on tour. Then the record went to number one, did really good. First self-released ever to do that uh, here in America. And, and I think it did really well in Canada, too. Mm-hmm. So then when you go on tour and you do that, you, st- you, you finally, st- you know, you get paid back for your, your investment. And the same thing happened this time around. It's on my um, label, Zuma Rock Records. Um, That's and, your personal label? Yes, yeah, my personal label. And then um, uh, what happened is that my, one of my managers, I have loads of managers, Irving Azoff, Lenny Beer, and Brian Tomasini, my three triumvirate and those guys uh lenny went off i think with irving and got began talking to red about distribution Mm -hmm. and then they heard the record and said they want to do more than distribution and get you know and go further into it so they took it over for me and and it ended up so i ended up sort of getting taken care of before it came out So it's just, again, it's like a labor of love. You just do it, because I have nothing else that I want to do, nothing else that I I can do. And- No uh, portable skills. No.
0: Bush and another one from 16 Stone from 1994, that's Come Down. More from Gavin Rossdale and what it's like to transition from an old school rock star into a do-it-yourself indie musician when we come back. Today we're looking at a case study. How can a musician who enjoyed multi-platinum glory days in the 1990s adjust to the new realities of the music business today? Our subject is Gavin Rossdale
1: of Bush. I think for this life that you have you have to if you have alternates if you have escape hatches escape routes chances are you're gonna use them so I made sure like every job for instance that I did when I was coming up every job I did um, was only menial labor and it was only in places where I knew that they would never I could not become indispensable, you know, maybe if I'd gone to work at a company and been good at advertising, you know, used my lyrics to be an advertiser, do copy, write copy, they might have said, hey, you've got a future, and they would have made it too attractive to not um, stay there. So I never paid, worked at a job that paid me more than like, you know, 50 bucks a day, and I worked like a dog and, you know, treated like a dog and just made music, and so, it was a major gamble that luckily paid off and not one i would advocate to anyone else or my children (laughs) (laughs) so you've turned into a
0: real entrepreneur you're doing things uh you're running your own business essentially right now with help from you know a couple of managers and you've got a distribution deal and, and that sort of thing uh which is kind of full circle because that's what an indie band does
1: yeah well you know remember when i first signed i signed to a uh, label called Trauma. So I've, uh, that's an independent label in the Valley. And Interscope really were basically my distributors. Mm. But then what happened is that obviously when when, you, uh, when it started to take off and the guys at Trauma went mental and lost their minds <laughs> uh, we just stuck with Interscope and uh, so I had always had the, the benefit that the, the, the backing and the, the financial support, uh, emotional support, musical support uh, of the team at Interscope that always helped me greatly over the years.
0: and swallowed from 1996's razor Blade suitcase. It's sold by the millions, too. But it's not just how people acquire music that's changed since then, but it's also how people consume it. I was talking to was a 17-year-old a couple of weeks ago, and I, we were talking about the future of music and music on the internet and all that. And after a while, I said, well, how do you get your music? And she says, I just make rips off YouTube. And, that, and that's good enough? She goes, yeah, that's, that's, that's fine. How do you listen to music? Well, earbuds, headphones. But what about speakers like, like this? You know, do you listen to big things? And she goes, no. Well, 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 when you're not listening on headphones, what do you listen on? Well, my laptop speakers are good enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, you must hear that and go.
1: Of course. Oh, kids, you know. I, well, yes and no. You know, he, everyone, I live on my laptop. I go in a hotel room uh, regularly uh, and I used to when I when we last met, the first thing you do when you go into a room so you don't feel lonely switch on the TV. I haven't switched on a TV in a hotel room in, I don't know, two, three years because everything I have is on my laptop. Everything I need is on my laptop. Now I happen to be the musician who I don't mind playing I don't mind I play my uh, uh, Spotify off of that or if I have forgotten, or if I hadn't charged my stupid jawbone or whatever the the little uh, beats pill if I don't have it with me I'll just play the laptop there because you know what it's fine I'm not I'm not critiquing it I miss the bass mm. I like bass but okay it's not there so it's more of a just a cultural thing and and then so wonderful like you know going back to that i i did a whole lot of press in l.a and i played to music to a lot of young journalists and i played in the studio and they couldn't believe those massive speakers because they're like oh my god you know know. you can play music (laughs) through speakers but you know again like we were saying earlier it just is what it is and you know part of the whole premise of 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 jimmy doing beats with dre was um, some of it was business, which has paid off. Jimmy's quite a good marketing guy. Um, w- was because of the, the lack of quality in the headphones. You know, the earbuds are the worst. I mean, at least headphones. The only thing I, you know, I've got to say about that, there's a bit of a shame to me, which isn't a Luddite comment, is that there's something great. You know, music is very personal, so of course, nothing better than headphones getting lost in music. It's also a communal thing, right? You come round, I'm gonna play you my new record, what am I gonna do? And I've been doing it in the hotel room, people come round, I go, here, check it out. And I sit there while they (laughs) listen to the, the headphones. And 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 there's something to, it's great. The speakers. We should we should tell the youth that speakers have a a good social element to them. And in, when they're out in nightclubs uh, to EDM, this apparently new form of music that's just begun. <laughs> uh, it's coming through speakers, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and you feel it in your chest. Yeah, that's yeah. part of the appeal. Yeah. Here's another sample from Bush's two thousand
0: and fourteen album, Man on the Run. This is how things begin. It's called Just Like My Other Sins. bush and just like my other sins from the 2014 album man on the run i had a question about the making of that record i know what the answer is but i'm going to ask it anyway as an artist when you're making this music when you're recording this music when you're agonizing over this music how do you feel when you know that a lot of this stuff that you're committing to zeros and ones isn't going to be heard because of the way people are listening
1: it's exactly the same as you know how are you upset people don't buy music in any way you know in any way they did before, it's just—it just is how it is, and it's just its, it's just—it's just futile to um, to to be overly concerned with it. I'm safe. I'm comfortable in the knowledge that someone, you, are going to play it on the speakers, and you're going to go, "I love the effort that's put into this. I can hear the guitars." So it's not not going to happen. It just doesn't happen as much as it should. But, you know, who's, I've got enough things to lose sleep over rather than imagining that, you know, oh my God, 40% of people are going to be listening on a laptop, 40% of people on earbuds, and 20% people, or 10% on speakers, they're okay, and 10% on great speakers. It just is what it is. The main thing, my only job and my only concern is to pour over that record and make it the best that I can so that if God forbid somebody takes the time to listen through the whole thing on speakers with somebody else, they can enjoy it together. Mm. You know what I mean? It's that simple. And it's, and it's very, it's become very, it's always it's very Buddhist. It's very, very simple. Um, it just is what it is. And I came up with this phrase the other day you know, the album I made the record because I wanted to make the record.
0: And, this, this and
1: quite different. nice that you don't, the things aren't burdened. Mm. By expectation, by competition, by stats, just, it's just it just is that, and that's mm-hmm. a beautiful thing. Well, that is extraordinarily
0: zen. Maybe maybe more should be taking your your approach to this and just <laughs> and let that, it happen. Yeah, or not, or whatever. We well, let it
1: happen. But my biggest point I'm making is make sure that the work that i what i have control over is being in that studio and trying to get it as good, good as i can as you know the best i can and that's what i did and then when i go out and play a show and <clears throat> I, I play every show like it's the last show i'm going to get to play and i'm not going to play again ever because that's the only way you should go out on a stage and if you have if you don't go out, if you go on a stage like that or phone it in, anything like that, you know, to me, it's a surefire way of, uh, of dying. For me, anyone that sees me from from, from Alberta to, to flip in, you know, Guelph, <laughs> if they, they, I will do the best I can for them. I will do the best I can. I don't care whether it's 400 people or 40,000 people. It's the same energy, same effort, same intention. And I, I firmly believe that if you don't, Live your life like that. You have no business expecting people to want to show up.
2: It
0: sounds like you've you've completely embraced the post CD World, mm-hmm. so it is it is all about YouTube views, it's all about the numbers of streams on yep. Spotify and Pandora, yep. it's uh, about getting music out there as a calling card and then yep. following it up with live performances.
1: Because in a way, if you're a live band, I mean, luckily for us, that's always been quite a mainstay. Obviously, it was incredible to have that opportunity to, to make that kind of... Um, uh, money nothing compared to what the labels would make mm-hmm. when you think about it like if we did okay after all expenses and management and split between four of us and we did okay I can only imagine um, how, how nice Jimmy Iovine's uh, jet is but I think it is very nice anyway and even nicer now um, but that's the way yeah, it goes he's had, a, he's
0: had a good run lately I
1: understand a good run is a smart man but it's that's how it goes and that's how the industry was uh, built upon the uh, sort of massacre of the artists and the profit of the, of the labels.
0: This program is all about how an artist has to change everything if they hope to survive as an artist in the post-CD world. And the subject is Gavin Rossdale and Bush. Here's more from our talk on the subject in New York, specifically why Bush went the crowdfunding route. Some people may find it a little bit odd that uh, a band that has had such a track record has gone the patron route. But it's not about financing the album, it's about enhancing the fan experience, right?
1: Yeah. And also, the, the world is so fragmented that what you're trying to do is just tap into these all the different areas for, so people are, know that it's out there and people know that it's coming. I mean, Pledge Music is, is an incredible company that's solely set up to uh, create excitement and anticipation that we used to get... Um, when there was you know incredible you know it used to be what i mean i mean i'm going to talk about america know that in canada we did so great and many more stations than there are now it's shrunk down i don't know what the numbers are in canada so if i excuse me if i use american example but when we began and back in the day i think there were a thousand uh, alternative stations and i think there's something like uh, 200 now it shrunk it has gone 180 yes yeah. yeah, so, so we so all the time you know the mtv uh, plays uh, no music Um, We never were very tight with VH1. I mean, I got a bit closer with him to my solo record because it was a bit easier going, so it was more suited to their channel. So when you get down to the brass tacks of it, how do you get it out there? How do you let people know
0: about it? The number of music magazines dwindle every year. Mm-hmm. Um, record stores where you could walk in, yeah. in the mall, they're gone. Yeah. Um, you said about VH1, MTV, not playing music videos anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, music radio
1: has become extremely fragmented, so we don't have the same. Thank thing. God for Palladia, uh, Vivo, and YouTube. Yeah, exactly. With those out, those guys, uh, it would be be floundering. Well, that's the funny thing that when people have been different artists who complain about the streaming thing, which, by the way, I think is in, is absolutely incredible, because in a way, it's like, it just creates interest, and having music at your fin- fingertips is, is, is something else. On your phone, just like bang, you find you want to reference a song. I think it's so exciting, and uh, it's funny because I have a, a, f- uh, a guy that, that, that helps me uh, run my house in London, and uh, I was saying, isn't Uber the greatest thing? Because I love going mm-hmm. by Uber. He said, no, it's terrible. He said, you know, the cab drivers are up in arms, and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. When did we sit down and have the tear-jerking conversation about music? And, you know, me, what am I supposed to do? You know, I'm all about just things moving forward. And, you know, with, with technology and with the Internet, there's so many great things from it that um, I think that it's, it, it's amazing. And, and, and the Pledge Music thing is, uh, is just another way, a smart way of just involving people. People want to get involved.
0: Bush and the Chemicals Between Us from the 1999 album The Science of Things. It came out in October of that year, which was about four months after this thing called Napster hit the interwebs. And we all know what happened after that. So back to 2014, what else is Gavin Rosdale doing to adapt to today's music business environment? And what advice does he have for everyone who wants to be an artist? One last question. You're a mentor on The Voice. What does that mean?
1: Um, it, it means an incredibly gracious platform with which to announce that I have a new record. For, you know, you know, without doubt, you know, and it's an obvious point, but I'm very grateful to me given the chance to be on there. Um, when you sat in the room with those kids coming in, up and coming singers, they're struck by how much it matters to them, how much hard work they put into their singing, what they've gone through, the sacrifices they've made, Clearly not on a pub-club circuit like we did back in the day, but certainly in a way of like being disciplined about how to sing, because they all sing really good. And um, I really enjoyed it. It's actually really fun, because it's such an unorthodox job mine. It's like an ancient job. I always say it's like it's like a wandering minstrel. My job in this modern world, it's a job that was from, from 10,000 years ago, from the beginning of time, some guy would come in selling medicine and playing songs for people. And it's no difference to, to what I do. So I respect anyone that, that, that puts their heart into something like that, because let's face it, the world is too full of people who want to do us harm and want to put us down. And so for anyone who wants to go into what's called the arts, even if it's just showbiz to be famous and to make money and to ride on a private jet, I don't care. Most people don't ever get to do that. Most people that go into music, they have a, a, a need to communicate and a desire to be creative and artistic, and I should think that should be celebrated in whatever form. And I was also asked, is it weird, you know, these kids, Because, you know, you come up a different way, you know, and it's a different thing. And there's, by the way, many bands, young bands, who would not go on those, you know, talent shows to be seen. But I don't judge anyone doing that. I think that everyone just does what they can to get ahead. That's it.
0: Should you want more to me, that's that's great. I can help. I have a website called a JournalOfMusicalThings dot com that's updated every single day with music news and music recommendations, along with all kinds of audio and video. It's a pretty cool site, if I do say so myself. And if you really want to keep up to date, there's the daily newsletter. It's free, and you never ever get any spam. If you'd rather connect on Facebook, there are a bunch of different accounts attached to me. Just launch a search and you'll find them all, I'm pretty sure. Plus, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Google+. Or if you'd just rather send me an old-fashioned email, you can do that too. The address is alan at alancross.ca. Just make sure you spell Alan with one L and you're golden. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross.